But we say to you today in a loud and clear voice, enough blood and tears, enough. Welcome back to the Humble Jurist Podcast. My name's Adam Belinsky, and you just heard a small part of former Utah Governor Michael Levitt's 2016 remarks at an annual J. Reuben Clark Law Society fireside. Levitt's speech focused on becoming what he calls statesmen, not gamesmen. Here's more of what he had to say. Well, tonight uh, you have honored my service. I would like to first declare that your noble mission serves us all. I am reminded in that context of an old Australian saying, rooster today, feather duster tomorrow. Uh, now being in the feather duster phase of my life, it's nice to have uh, such a, a kind gesture. But tonight I would, I would like to uh, talk a bit about some experiences that I've had in my public service. And I'd like to talk about leaders that I have met. Some good, some not so good. But before I do that, I would like to just also thank Gary Doxey for his very kind introduction. Gary is a wonderful friend. As he was speaking, however, my memory turned to one of my favorite events while I was governor. We called it the Centenarian Event. And each spring, we would invite anyone who had turned 100 years of age or older to come to the governor's residence where we would celebrate their lives. Now, each year, uh, there was something notable and memorable. But what I was thinking about is that the, one of the oldest people to come was uh, Gary's uh, uh, wife, Debbie's grandfather, Kenneth Burnett, who was 105 years old and stood and regaled us with poetry. On another year, there was a man who was 102. His wife was a mere 99. They had been married for 77 years. That is exactly the way I responded. I said, 77 years, that is a long time. And to demonstrate that you never lose your sense of humor, he said in a voice about like this, it is a long time. <laughs> but we're going to get a divorce. I said, after 77 years, you're going to get a divorce? Why now? Because we wanted to wait until the kids were dead. <laughs> now, Jackie and I are at 43, and I am holding on to use that line on my own someday. <laughs> In September of the first year that Jackie and I served, um, we were in Washington, D.C., where I had to attend some meetings at the White House. There were, at the time, quiet negotiations that had been going on for months between the PLO and Israel. And as it turned out, they had struck a deal and had arranged to come to the United States in which to, uh, to announce it. The announcement would be made by the chairman of the Palestinian Liberation Army, Yasser Arafat, and Yitzhak Rabin, who was at the time the prime minister uh, of Israel and the minister of defense. 
Now, all of us are aware of the centuries of conflict between Arabs and Jews. Uh, Yitzhak Rabin had been made the prime minister in 1991, and he had come on with the idea of finding peace. He had immediately begun to withdraw or discontinue the development of settlements uh, in the Golan Heights and on the West Bank. And they had reached agreement on a set of governing principles, principles that they hoped would bring peace, or at least a process toward peace. We were invited to attend the signing of that ceremony. Jackie and I were ushered to the front row, where we sat right at the edge of the table where they were to sign. There was a bit of a delay, and everyone wondered if there had been a diplomatic snag but finally, a voice said, ladies and gentlemen, the President of the United States, the Prime Minister of Israel, and the Chairman of the Palestinian Liberation Army. All three of them emerged simultaneously from the diplomatic entrance of the White House. President Clinton was in the middle. Uh, uh, Prime Minister Rabin was on his right, best dressed in a business suit, and on his left was Yasser Arafat with his familiar checked headscarf. I remember there being applause, but no music, and the three of them walked across the South Lawn. Each of them sat at opposite ends of a large wood table on a small stage. The president spoke, and then Yasser Arafat spoke. And then Yitzhak Rabin, the former top-ranking general for the Israeli army, approached the podium. His demeanor and his words were somber. There was no sense of celebration on this occasion for him. His words were unforgettable to me. We are soldiers who have returned from battle stained with blood, he said. We have seen our relatives and our friends killed before our eyes. We have fought against you, the Palestinians. But we say to you today in a loud and clear voice, enough blood and tears, enough. We must give peace a chance. It was time to, serve, to sign the agreement. An eerie silence fell across the South Lawn of the White House. As an undertone to that silence, you could hear hovering helicopters, symbolizing and underscoring the security concerns of an event like that. I could see the American flag flying above the Eisenhower office building. It was a beautiful September day in Washington, D.C. It was significant to me that while the United States had not been fully involved in these negotiations, that it was the United States where they came to announce it because they knew how important the United States was in the context of such an agreement. Simultaneously, you could hear the click of hundreds of cameras with every move of their arm, 
the world watched. And as they did, there were protesters in Lafayette Park who were chanting their disapproval and opposition to the agreement that they were just about to sign. They signed the document. They pushed themselves away from the table. And then the world watched to see if these two bitter enemies, who represented civilizations who were at war for hundreds of years, would shake hands. You probably remember the picture of the President of the United States with his arms outstretched, Yasser Arafat on his left, Yixaf Rabin on his right, and they shook hands. It was a moment of history. The enemies of that agreement were many. And in a tragic postscript, two years later, Yixaf Rabin was killed by an assassin's bullet while he attended a rally supporting the implementation of the principles that were contained in that agreement. The Middle East, of course, continues to be increasingly a complex place. Uh, scholars and diplomats uh, throughout decades since and, and, and after and, and in the future will debate on whether that agreement was meaningful or not. But I know this. Yixaf Rabin remains in my mind as a symbol of statesmanlike leadership. My next story requires just a little lesson on history, the history of Central America, and I want to tell you about an unlikely friendship that I formed over the course of time. During the 1980s, many of you will remember a, a young Marxist dictator in Nicaragua by the name of Daniel Ortega. Daniel Ortega, at the age of 15 years old, uh, was arrested for political misbehavior. He immediately joined an underground group called the Sandinistas. At age 22, he was convicted of robbing a bank. It was a Bank of America branch, and he was brandishing a machine gun as he, he did it. Reportedly, as he served a sentence for that uh, crime, he was beaten and he was tortured as a in a way that fueled his anti-government feelings in a dramatic way. When he left prison, he was sent into exile and went to Cuba, where he was taught guerrilla warfare tactics. And he returned secretly months later to Nicaragua, where he began a relationship or continued a relationship with the Sandinistas. The Sandinista organization, like many others, was more than a political party. It attracted members by helping them find employment, by giving them support with such basics as health care and food and housing. In exchange for that basic support, its members were expected to support their military goals of insurrection. During the years of 19, the 70s, or many of you will remember that Ortega and the Sandinistas ultimately overthrew the, the government with a revolution, and they took possession by force, not just of the government, but many of the private properties that were owned by people uh, in Nicaragua. Their stated goal was to spread their Marxist revol revolution throughout the rest of Central America. 
Now, just how the United States should respond to this had become a matter of great controversy. It was a significant political issue. Many in Congress wanted the United States to intervene. Uh, others still worry of the kind of bruising impact that, uh, this, that the Vietnam War had had on this, on this nation wanted no part of another, another intervention militarily. Congress ultimately made the decision that there would be no U.S. assets used in the conflict and that it would be illegal to do so. And many of you will recall a young lieutenant colonel by the name of Oliver North, who served President Reagan at the time as the National Security Advisor. And North apparently began to use various means of supporting the opposition uh, 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 to the Sandinistas, a group called the Contras, who were bitter enemies of uh, Daniel Ortega and the Sandinistas. And a kind of scandal broke out in the second term, uh, term of the Reagan administration because of Oliver North's uh, uh, perceived support of them. Ortega and the Sandinistas, however, overtook the government and continued to control the government until the 1990s. And by that time, the, the, their, their governance had so destroyed the economy of Nicaragua that the people simply had had all they wanted of Daniel Ortega, and he was and he lost control of the government, and the country began to move back toward democracy. So now out of government, Daniel Ortega was still the head of the Sandinista party. But he knew he had to change his game, and so he made two very pragmatic moves. The first is he became a member of the Catholic Church, which is the predominant religion in Nicaragua. And second, he began to politically shift his ideology of his party, the Sandinistas, from one, uh, one of Marxism to simply democratic socialism. He then became a candidate for the presidency of Nicaragua in 1996 and in 2001, losing both times in a very similar way. Because the country had many parties, to become president, it was the law that the party had to receive and the candidate had to receive 45% of the, of the popular vote or face a runoff. And each time he ran, Daniel Ortega would get 38% short of the 45 and in the runoff election, everyone would vote against him and he would fall short of the presidency. In 1996, uh, a man by the name of Arnaldo Ailman was elected president. He was the leader of Nicaragua's most conservative party. He was a businessman, and in the 1980s, he had been a bitter opponent of the Sandinistas. So this had to be a kind of difficult defeat uh, for Daniel Ortega. Ailman was, by all accounts, a fairly good on the, for the economy. But he got entangled in scandal, and he was defeated in 2001, just like Ortega had been. Ailman was then convicted of, of, of a corruption charge, and he was sentenced to 20 years in prison. So Ailman's conservative party saw his convictions actually as being, as being po uh, political. 
and many of his supporters in the Congress stuck with him. And Daniel Ortega saw an opportunity. Ortega was the far left Sandinistas. Ailman was the far right most conservative party. Uh, Ortega proposed what they referred to in Nicaragua as the El Paco. They brought the left and the right together, and together they had enough votes to control the Congress in their legislative branch, and among their first projects was to change the election laws so that the percentage to get elected president was no longer 45%, but 38%. <laughs> so in the 2006 election, Daniel Ortega once again ran, got his customary 38%, but this time it was enough to be elected president, and Daniel Ortega was president of Nicaragua again, but this time there was no revolution. He was democratically elected. Now that presented a very complex diplomatic situation for the United States. We like to support countries that practice democracy. His campaign had made some friendly gestures to the United States, but there was nothing in his background that would cause one to conclude that he would be a friend to democracy or to the United States. Now, I was at the time Secretary of Health and Human Services. I had spent a lot of time in Central America dealing with a whole array of issues in food safety and pandemic preparation and general health diplomacy. The White House during that time had been completely focused on the Middle East and the war, and I had repeatedly gone to the White House and I'd said to the President, I am deeply concerned about what's happening in Central America. I can feel the last 30 years of progress beginning to slip away in terms of its leaning toward democracy, and I suggested that they might want to make a presidential visit to Central America just to fly the flag. Um, the question then had to be asked, should the United States send a delegation to Nicaragua to the inauguration of Daniel Ortega? The president said, Levitt talks a lot about this, let's send him. <laughs> so I got a call from the White House indicating that I would be representing the president in the United States at the inauguration of President Daniel Ortega. I led a dele delegation to Managua, the capital city, and time will not, will not allow me to tell all of the circumstances of that event, but I will say that I just mention a couple. I was asked to visit President-elect Daniel Ortega at the headquarters of the Sandinistas. It was an almost residential-looking kind of dwelling, uh, uh, building in a neighborhood. I was greeted by his wife, who was a kind of new age spiritual, a new age spiritual person. She had painted the walls with all kinds of different colors and a giant seeing eye uh, that could look at all of us. Uh, I, I tried to keep the conversation actually more personal uh, and to get acquainted with them as opposed to uh, dealing with anything diplomatic. I just wanted him to know that the United States was there. I actually kind of enjoyed him, and we had a very thoughtful and, and pleasant conversation. 
And the next day, it was the inauguration. It was a very hot day, as it tends to be that time of year in, in Managua. The meeting was outside. It was to start at 1 o'clock. At 1.30, it hadn't started. At 1.45, it hadn't started. And finally, at 2 o'clock, we were invited to go into a small building as diplomatic visitors uh, to, to wait. Before we had gone in, however, I began to talk to the man next to me who introduced himself as Arnaldo Altman, who was the former president of the country of Nicaragua. I thought he was in jail on a 20-year sentence. It turns out that shortly after this El Paco had been made, he was granted house arrest and then suddenly began to receive more and more extended medical leave grants to the extent that now he was sitting next to the, the, the representative of the President of the United States at the country's inauguration. Uh, a very convenient deal for both the left and the right. Well, when we got inside, we realized that the reason that this was, in fact, being delayed is because a very important guest had not arrived. Hugo Chavez, the president of Venezuela, was coming to the, to the uh, inauguration, and Comrade Chavez had not yet arrived, and we could not start without him. Uh, as I learned later, he was an important guest because in that region, he played big because of oil. It turned out that the campaign of the Sandinistas had been financed through a very clever financing mechanism where Mr. Chavez had made a donation to the Sandinistas of a very large amount of oil, which was then represented as a gift to the people at a price that was slightly below where they could otherwise pay for it, but they got it for free, and so the entire campaign of the Sandinistas was essentially paid for through the sale of that oil. And so there was a very, he was a very important guest. In fact, he was the keynote speaker and sort of co uh, stole the show. Now, the United States was not having many diplomatic discussions with Hugo Chavez at that time, as you might remember. But there I was in a small room with Daniel Ortega who approached me to introduce me to Hugo Chavez. I could hear a interpreter behind me interpreting what was being said between the two of them. And he introduced me as the guy from the United States. He's a fairly nice man. You'll like to meet him. <laughs> Chavez walked straight to me and walked up uncomfortably close so as to play his normal role as, frankly, a big blustery bully. And he said to me, without any other introduction, how is the infant mortality in the United States? And I, having absolutely no idea how to answer that question, I said, it's improving. How about Venezuela? <laughs> he said, we have problems, but in Cuba, that's where they're doing it well. Uh, we had, I think I may have been one of the few U.S. diplomats or, or, or representatives to have a, such a conversation during that period with Hugo Chavez. Well, I mentioned these two because I, these two experiences, because they are two very different types of leaders. I remember one of them as being a statesman, that is, 
Yixop Rabin, I remember the other, Daniel Ortega, as being a very skilled gamesman. Statesmanship to me is doing the right thing because it is the right thing. Gamesmanship is just figuring out how to win at all costs. Now the reality is that in the real, in the real world of politics, effective leaders have to be both statesmen and gamesmen. A statesman incapable of understanding how to find a way to win within the rules accomplishes nothing. And it's been my observation that every political leader is working through a constant zero-sum game of balancing those two. From my own experience, I will tell you that when you are this much statesman and just a little bit gamesman, you find satisfaction. The higher the degree of your gamesmanship, the less comfortable you become. I mention that because I've been talking about politics, but could I say that we're all in politics? Politics is not just about leading governments. It's about any time there is a decision to be made about, among people about splitting up money and influence. There's politics in the arts. There's politics in education. There's politics in medicine. There's politics in the law. So tonight I leave you with this challenge. Let us be statesmen. Thanks for joining us. Subscribe and come back for more inspiring content. Until then, be humble and just.